1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman.
0: And Hannah, since this episode is going up on December 27th, which is smack dab in the middle of the holidays, I want to talk about seasonal treats in the sorting chat. Mm,
1: Marcel, you know I love talking about seasonal treats. Marcel,
0: when is Hanukkah this year? What are the dates? Uh, nobody knows. <laughs> no one ever knows. Hanukkah arrives unbidden in the night. The first night is sundown on December 18th. Thank you, Coach. Coach, you're the only Jew in the world who knows when (laughs) Hanukkah starts.
1: Yeah. Every year, one special Jew is chosen who's gifted the knowledge of when (laughs) Hanukkah begins. And then it's their job to
0: tell everyone else. And this year, it's Coach. Congratulations, Coach. It's not the chosen people. It's the chosen person. (laughs) And it's Coach. That's also Coach's joke. I ask
1: because my favorite vegan donut place in Vancouver does jelly donuts just for Hanukkah. Sufgenyot. And I
0: I say it again. (laughs) I've never had one, but I believe that it's pronounced Sufgenyat. Sufgenyat. Incredible.
1: Well, I'll eat six for you. Because even though I am not Jewish... That is one of my favorite holiday treats. I just love that it's like, hey, everybody, it's Hanukkah. Eat a jelly donut. And I'm like,
0: "Okay." I mean, Jews are very good at food, like very good at YOLO, first of all. And so all of the food is very like rich and delicious. So, you know, add a holiday where we celebrate the miracle of oil and you've got.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I might have a latke party, too.
0: Lakhs are so good. So
1: there you go. I'll be celebrating Hanukkah with <laughs> treats.
0: What are your What are your favorite holiday treats? I love latkes and applesauce. Like I said, I've never had a Jewish jelly donut. <laughs> probably, I've probably had a Goyish. goyish I've donut. probably had Goyish jelly donuts before, <laughs> but never a Jewish jelly donut. I got to say, my. Truly, my very favorite is my... Well, you know, we had this conversation, I think, in our previous recording. We talked about gingerbread and oh, yeah. how much we both love gingerbread. And so I got to go back to... We've got really one-track minds, huh? Well, listen, it's the time of year. <laughs> I'm sorry, does somebody have something else they want us to talk about in the sorting chat? Something other than delicious treats? Listen, you here fascist? are the things I've got delicious treats and updates
1: on how my renovation is going. I'm promising you one of those topics is more interesting than the other.
0: <laughs> so yeah, yeah, gingerbread, but specifically my grandma's gingerbread.
1: Are you going to receive that gingerbread directly from your grandma this
0: year? I am going to see my grandma if that's what you are if that's what you are asking. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh and and she does usually make one batch of gluten-free gingerbread cookies just for me. And I am a real bitch about it and I don't share with anybody. Um so I got my fingers crossed.
1: My my longing for this year is to have an oven by Christmas because I would you really have an, I don't have a kitchen myself. I camp in my apartment. So if I'm very good, if I'm very good, maybe Santa will bring me an oven and in that oven I will bake cookies. Oh my
0: god. Hannah, you've been very good. And if Santa doesn't bring you an oven, Santa's a fascist (laughs) douchebag. Speaking of holiday treats, we have a very special treat today. A guest! But, you know... Before we can unwrap our presents, we need to do a little housekeeping, which is what we're going to do in revision. Now, we are
1: talking today about house elves, which is a topic we have been touching on for, like, the whole podcast, (laughs) like, as soon as house elves were introduced, because they're such a, like, complicated, problematic, rich topic of discussion. Fraught. Fraught, one might say. So we, you know, we've been circling the topic for a while now. Most notably, we talked about house elves in our episode on critical race theory with our special guest, Kay Alexandra, who read the house elves as racialized and enslaved figures. In that episode, we argued that a key intervention offered by critical race studies is its focus on how racism is systemic and institutionalized. What that means is that racism is more likely to be embedded in cultural norms, laws, housing policies, budget decisions, zoning, etc., than necessarily to be articulated overtly as a belief or principle. So in that context, we can see how the embedding of house elves literally in institutions like Hogwarts naturalizes their role there to the point that most wizards seem to genuinely believe that freedom would make the elves unhappy.
0: We also talked about the house elves in our episode on hauntology with Lydia Nicole. In that discussion, Lydia named the house elves as an absent presence that haunts the halls of Hogwarts, comparing them to the absent presences of enslaved people in historical photography. And, of course, we've taken a special interest in Creature, not only via our extremely important segment, Creature Report, but also in our discussion of motherhood with Aaron Wunker. We noted the way Creature participates in what Aaron called domestic world-making, alongside the impossibility of fully understanding the cultural role of motherhood without considering it in relation to race, with house elves, of course, being a central example in the books.
1: Plus, in our very last episode about sentimentality, we talked about the sentimental tropes at work in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and how they resonate with Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Stowe in that novel uses sympathetic identification with enslaved characters to quote-unquote humanize them by depicting them as feeling deeply in a literary move that is strikingly similar to how this book humanizes Creature by emphasizing his love for Regulus Black, specifically. And of course, lucky for our heroes, once humanized, Creature actually wants to serve them more than he did before. Mm, That seems kind of fucked up, doesn't it? It really does. And I think it's worth discussing why. And in order to Mm -hmm. understand why, I think we might need some expert help.
0: Lucky for us, we have an expert here with us today. Would you like to meet her? On behalf of me and everybody listening, I really would. You
2: know,
1: there's something magical about this time of year when we somehow transform the longest nights into bright gatherings. And speaking of magical transformations... It's time for Transfiguration class.
0: That was a beautiful intro,
1: Hannah. Oh my God, thank you. It was just actually genuine, which is never the case with my intros. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, pronouns she, her. Jessica is an associate professor in the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University and a fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Studies at Harvard University. She is also the director of Life Code, Digital Humanities Against Enclosure. Jessica is a historian of Atlantic slavery and the Atlantic African diaspora. She is the author of Wicked Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy and Freedom in the Atlantic World, published with University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020, which won so many prizes that I can't even list them here. And of course, she used to babysit Coach. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome
0: Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> a really important addition to the bio, I think we can all agree.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I assume that that's just part of your bio, Jessica. Is absolutely. That, is that true? Yeah no, yeah. no, no,
1: no. It's how I've how I've made my way. Amazing. Can we begin by hearing a little bit about your relationship to the Harry Potter series? Like these are
2: one presumes books you have read. Are they, were you a fan as a kid? So I um, was very much a fan. I was a huge fan and remain a huge fan of the books, even if I have not so fan-like fan feelings about the author now. But yes, read them all. Actually, was late to reading the books, was maniacally addicted to the movies. My um, younger sister, Kristen Iris Johnson, who coach also knows, um, and who has now gone on to do... Genre fiction as well. Um, She right now has a has a show on all black um, network called Wicked City. She was the one who really convinced me like, no, you really have to read the books. There's something in the books that is richer and deeper and a little darker when you actually start Mm. reading the, (laughs) the actual text than mm-hmm. the movies, which I think are, you know, a really, you know, a really fun ride. Um, and have all kinds of really interesting elements. But yeah, and the thing, yeah, the there are many things that are in the books that I'm like, oh, this is this is a little different. And that relate to thinking about race, thinking about even slavery, the house house definitely. Um, that was one of the most obvious ones, the questions of blood and um mm-hmm. and also just uh rise of fascism. There are some really blatant things in the books that are not as clear in movies, but once you read the books and watch the movies, it's like, okay, I see exactly where the the shadow of this is.
0: Do you identify with a particular house?
2: I have taken those Harry Potter tests that you circulate (laughs) on the Facebook and on the socials. (laughs) And I I sadly would usually end up in some combination of Ravenclaw and Slytherin, which I'm not sure. (laughs) Nice. I always like wonder like why is this here?
1: <laughs> I love that slytherin is an option on the quizzes. It's always like
2: oh oh cool I've sorted into the fetches yeah like sure <laughs> yeah like you know and I get you know some aspects some like rampant ambition there you know some aggressive like antisocial behavior uh you know maybe like a practical joke that's fatal like you know okay. <laughs> Sure, you know, can see how some of that is there. You know, who hasn't killed a man or two in their lives? Oops, so sorry.
1: (laughs) It was funny. In my defense, it was funny. I do have a theory that, like, a lot of academics, I think, lie at the Ravenclaw-Slytherin intersection. I think that is a very common intersection in academia. Because you got to be bookish,
0: but you also need to be a little cutthroat. (laughs) You have to be a little cutthroat. So, Jessica... Your research focuses on Black diasporic freedom struggles. So why don't we start by talking about the concept of the diaspora and why it's so central to the histories you study?
2: So I am very, very much interested in... um the time period that includes the period of slavery and in coming to that history i was very interested and in, remain deeply invested in um black life so how are people of african descent africans and people of african descent really grappling with this world that is being created around them um that they're part of but also you know part of macro processes that are well beyond the home that they live in, the town that they live in, the nation, all of that. And for me, that work really required a deep investment in histories of the African continent, polities on the continent, um, and thinking about the ways that African history has to be part of the diaspora history. African history has to be part of the history of Black peoples across the Americas. And this is why I think without a deep grounding um, or a considerate grounding and understanding of African experiences across the continent of the different polities and their um, different nations and their politics, their structure, the economics, the reasons and rationales by which they engage or do not engage each other, as well as Europeans that come to trade for all kinds of things, for gold, for cotton, for, for Africans as well, then we end up with a kind of history of Black people in the Americas as like oh okay you arrived as enslaved and then there's no kind of sense of oh actually people were people before they were embarked on slave ships they were people with rich and complex histories with cosmologies that predated their time in the hold of the ship with politics and a different understanding of the world at times not always but at times that predates you know the Enlightenment that predates European ways of thinking, Western modes of thinking, so having um, that as a center really reshapes how you understand the histories of of the Americas, and that can be really transformative um, for folks, and can be a a, a gateway drug to um, other kinds of um, political consciousness and. Um, Potential uh, political organizing, I hope. I- I'm always happy if people just learn the history, but I also have like an ulterior motive like, <laughs> so where else might you go with this? <laughs> mm-hmm. What community organizing would you like to do? Let's, you know, let's get you connected and, <laughs> and get you exposed to, uh, you know, changing the entire world. They're like, oh a history.
1: I hope this radicalizes you. Yes, exactly. Just a little
2: whisper. Just a little whisper. And you know, maybe that's the Slytherin in me. It's just like, yeah, you know, it's just it's just it's just a class. It's just history. It's just a spell. But actually, actually,
0: (laughs) Slytherins are absolutely interested in revolution. It's just unfortunate that the revolution that they were particularly invested in was fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can we take a step back and just in case there's anybody listening right now who's like, I don't know the word diaspora. What is that? It's a great idea, Hannah.
2: So diaspora is a term that at its heart really means um, dispersal, right? And is usually used in regards to the forced dispersal of a people. So it is used in relation to, uh, often relations into uh, Jewish diasporas as being forcibly dispersed in a whole host of directions, um, has very much been taken up by folks who are thinking about the forced migration and the forced um, kidnapping and trafficking of African. Africans from across the continent, um, into the Americas, but it's using, it's also used in, in other capacities to describe the for describe force movement broadly. And that force piece I think is really important because I think sometimes it can be used to just sort of describe, yes, we're just moving around. That's more migration, right? That doesn't capture the part of Movement where you are moving because you have no choices because of austerity, um, because of land enclosure, because of climate catastrophe that you know at this point we realize is you know so much man made and so much industry made by petrochemical companies and other things, or you're moving because you are literally being kidnapped <laughs> and trafficked you know to other parts of the world and and so there's that force piece I think is really important when we're thinking about diaspora. So it is a word that applies across many different peoples that have found themselves in new homelands um, and have found themselves having to make new homelands in, in new hostlands. But in this instance, when I'm talking about diaspora, I am specifically thinking about um, the African diaspora, and um, which is global, which spans you know, so much time and space I'm thinking about the African diaspora as it was being created between the 1440s and the 1880s, which is that period of enslavement. So 1441 is the first um, ship that is of of Africans. I think it's like 235 um, African women, children and men who are trafficked from West Africa, Arguably Mauritania or Senegal, I think the kind of debate is is still debating, um, but our traffic to Lisbon, so that's that very first ship of this era, and then eighteen eighty eight is um the general emancipation in um in Brazil
1: yeah, and so that that thinking of if we're talking about diaspora, we actually need to think seriously about where people have come from, not just where they where they ended up, which is I think such a vital intervention into the way a lot of stories about minoritized subjects are told which which do tend to sort of fixate on the experience of what it is like to be in the place that you are now in and less of that sort of historicizing of of what have you brought with
2: you Totally. I mean, um, I usually go by scholar Kim Butler, who is a Brazilianist African diaspora scholar. Um, her definition of diaspora when I'm thinking about it in practice. Um, so her definition is um diasporas have five parts. One is the condition, like what is creating the conditions of dispersal? There's the homeland, which is two three is the hostland for our relations with that community in where they where they land. but then five is relations with that community to themselves and other host lands. And so um one of the reasons I find that such an interesting set of frameworks like one, two, three, four, five is that sometimes we forget that there is the the sort of origin point and then there's where folks land. but then there's also like because it's diaspora, it does require, more than one place. So I guess that's also part of the definition I should clarify, which is that a diaspora is different from migration in that you're not just one group going from point A to B, you're one group going from point A to B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, And so that relationship between, you know, the folks who end up in point B and folks who end up in point C or point F, those actually become really interesting um, relationships. And that's what you have in um, when you're talking about the African diaspora, you're talking folks who have an origin point in the continent, but who end up in Cuba, in the DR, in the, what becomes United States, in Brazil, and have, you know, sometimes very different relationships, not just to each other, but to where they landed, the empires that have enslaved them and the communities that they have to build and rebuild in those places. So it's very complicated. <laughs>
0: Historicize, historicize, it's always time to historicize.
1: So we've talked in previous episodes about this concept of of absent presence, and in our episode about critical archival studies, the way that archives like strategically and intentionally erase some voices. So I'm really curious to hear more about how you work with archives in order to understand the experiences of people like enslaved people and Black women in particular, whose own voices have rarely been archived in these histories.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is a very careful kind of work trying to even just spot Black women in the archives in this time period um this is a time period where the texts that are available are themselves limited because this is still you know this early we'll just call it the early modern era to kind of bracket that you know the centuries that i just mentioned in the early modern era most people are not actually reading and writing like the think of like the masses masses are not reading and writing and then saying hey let me save my diary in some library in benjamin franklin's library that would be really great you know they're um, the traditions are oral. The conversations are very oral. um, music, dance, all of these things. Now these are things that now we're thinking about how to archive, but at the time not. So when you think about who has the privilege and the um the economic, you know, ability to, you know, pay for a pen and paper, to think about writing it down, to imagine that they, have something that, you know, have a place that somebody will, you know, save this for posterity. You're talking about a particular group of folks. Um, initially, very much you're talking about the nobility. You're talking about a, a kind of um, upper middle class gentry. You're talking about, um, when you call to talking about numbers and figures, you're talking about folks who are, you know, business people, traders, investors, that kind of thing. And these are not people who are often of African descent. There are some. But they are, in the grand scheme of this moment, most of them are European. Um, They're in this world of this, um, what we describe as the Atlantic world. So North America, South America, Europe, African continent. They're in this world in part because they are part of a colonizing project. They are, you know, the sons of nobles who own plantations, who end up, you know, somewhere in Jamaica, having to run the plantation. They are overseeing other plantations. They're ship builders, their ship captains, their surgeons who are, you know, also navigating this world of, you know, strange health care and all of that. So these are not folks who are African again in this particular world. They actually have a very strong um, literate culture and particularly within West Africa, um, because Islam um, you know, requires and demands particular kinds of um, literacy um, and writing ability in order to move forward in, in, in the faith. So that's not to say that the continent itself doesn't have a writing culture, it actually very much does. But in this early modern space, that's not necessarily the case. Um, those who are enslaved, even those who are able to read and write, um, Jabin Solomon is actually a really good example um, who ends up finding his way back they are not given access to those materials. And so you have what is brought down to us because of who is able to create textual material, but also then, you know, find archives to put it in, is biased. It's just as biased. Like we can play objectivity games, but <laughs> what we have available to us <laughs> is from the perspective of mostly white men, often also white women, some um, folks who are invested in some way in the colonizing project and the imperial project, and who have, at best, complicated relationships to things like slavery, things like indigenous genocide. And so if that's a perspective we have already, reading into that for what are the experiences of, of African women and women of African descent is difficult. And reading deeper into the what is available to find where the voices of black women might be speaking for themselves or writing their own experiences is also really hard. And so we have you know some kind some sets of documentation that you know have been cleaved to and and mine and need to continue to be mine. So we have, you know, um 19th century slave narratives like Harriet Jacobs, Um, Sojourner Truth dictated hers. Um, Harriet Tubman also told her story often, both on the lecture circuit, but also, you know, had it written down. So we have those kinds of things. We also have court documents where Enslaved people are taking their owners to court in order to secure freedom, demanding their um, their rights according to the Code Noir, which is one of the you know for as an example, which is one of the black codes um, issued by the French Empire, um, where they could be litigious. Africans were incredibly litigious in the Americas. worked very very hard to place themselves before and in front of people in authority in order to be able to make their claims for you know all kinds of things. If they kill their owner, they're making their claims. For were like, no, it was actually justified. If they stole food, you know, like same thing, you know, like dancing, like all kinds of stuff. And not, not just in the, their own defense, but like saying like, no, 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 I have a right to do this. I have a right to freedom. I have a right to, um, you know, I have a right to certain rations because of the code noir or because of whatever code, uh, police codes or Black codes are operating. Um, and so those are the kind of documents where, um, where we're able to glean from those, some of the experiences, but they're not complete, which means being true to and thinking about about, okay, what might be missing is a very deliberate practice and methodology. Um, in the book, one of the things I talk about is the null value, which is a way of sort of thinking about and holding space for what is missing in the register in the census in the archive and imagining what the possibilities might be there, both um, violent and destructive, but also possibilities of resistance and marinage on the part of enslaved people, um, where are enslaved people potentially trying to avoid being written down um, because, you know, the act of, of being caught often attended their appearance in in the archive and in documents. So you have, um, you also have those kinds of aspects of, um, of uh, material um, research to, to be thinking through as well. Jessica,
0: for, for me and also listeners who might not know, could you also define what marinage is?
2: I'd be happy to, yes. Um, so marronage is the word that um, was used at the time and that scholars now use to describe running away. Uh, and so that might be running away for a time, which is also, the word for that is also um, truancy, particularly in the English-speaking um, colonies. But marronage, a petite marronage, is the word that is used to say, oh, this person is running away maybe for a time and um, and may come back. And then um, there's a word, gramma, uh, which is basically you have run away for weeks, maybe months at a time, maybe you are never going to be found. Maroonage is also a word that um, describes uh, the communities that um, where they were able to build like whole palisaded, you know, enforced communities of runaways, um, maroon communities. Uh, that word also describes those communities as a whole. So Suriname, Jamaica, you know, like uh, communities in the dismal swamp of, of the United States and um the cypress swamps of Louisiana, like being able to kind of come together as a band of runaways was also a practice uh, where it was possible. Yeah.
1: Okay, this does actually tie in really well to our next question. So in our last episode on sentimentality, we talked about this like popular narrative that Harriet Beecher Stowe ended slavery by writing a sad book about it and how that erases the actual organizing of actual enslaved people. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the forms that freedom struggles took in the Black
2: diaspora? I absolutely can. This actually does segue really well because the Maroon um, colony that I didn't mention was actually the Northern United States. Especially after um, the um, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, uh, we could actually think of, I think um, Stephen Hahn, scholar Stephen Hahn actually makes this claim. We can actually think of like the northern U.S., like that above the Mason-Dixon line as, you know, a protected space for runaways. Um, and that's to say that, yeah, like, I mean, um, before... And, you know, and, and you know, the places that fled slavery long after Harriet Beecher so wrote <laughs> Tom's Cabin, um, you absolutely had enslaved people. They, they were the ones who really pushed the lever as far as um, securing um, securing freedom. So some of the, the ways absolutely looked like um, running away, right, you know, running away, even if for a time is something that, push the boundaries of of slave owner power, of pushed the boundaries of even like the geography of the plantation, like transgressing that was very much a radical act. Um scholar Stephanie Camp um, um talks about the rival geography that, you know, like that that was actually really important and a huge affront. That's why there were laws made b- about it. That's why you can be hamstrung and be branded as a result of that. Like, And that's another thing, like when we think about the punishments that are being offered, like we actually can't be lights about, um, you know, like things that might seem small, like, oh, they gathered for dancing. That wasn't really resistance. No, they could be killed for that. And there are people in the archive who were killed for just gathering to dance, and so, you know, like you have, um, you have things like that. You have folks who, you know, reclaim their time and their labor as a result of, of gathering, as a result of um, um, creating gardening spaces and um, selling their own goods and creating some kind of economic space for themselves, which becomes a gateway drug to saving up money for your own self-purchase, right? So, like you have these, you know, step by step by step. Um, You had folks who raised um, arms, you know, full arms, like full attacks on slavery, Um, the Stoner Rebellion. Um, You have Nat Turner's Revolt. Um, You have the 1811 Slave Revolt in Louisiana, like so many. And and this is just like, you know, what becomes the United States. Um, You have so many, so many instances of those and and many that were marked as, you know, just, you know, quote unquote, just conspiracies, which is how um, slave owners and colonial officials would try and like, you know, back away from the very real threat. Of enslaved Africans in their midst rising up, um, so in every way possible, in a thousand ways that we have yet to even kind of really kind of conceptualize and theorize, um, enslaved people and people of African descent fought against uh, fought against slavery, and and so you know I think it's important to think about, you know, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin and Harriet Beecher Stowe and the print culture that's generated around this moment of organizing in the late, um, in the latter part of the antebellum era. It's absolutely important. Frederick Douglass knew the power of the pen. He wrote multiple autobiographies. Um, Sojourner Truth knew the power of the, of the lecture circuit. She would sell um, photographs of herself that said, I sell the shadow to, you know, um, to show the substance, right? Like she, you know, very much, you know, was clear that, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to let people know what is happening. We can't let up, right? Um, But it is also the case that that had to coincide with armed revolt. It had to coincide with the remapping of time and space that, you know, truancy allowed that like, oh, if I go this far, this is where the dogs won't catch me. If I go this far, this is where the river is. Like, that all of these were part of an education of resistance and an education of radical radicalism that helped lead to uh the civil war. Um, it just you know, period. So enslaved people free themselves. <laughs> sort of the long version of this through their own act of resistance. And um, and you know, great to have texts like Uncle Tom's Cabin that generated a kind of sentiment. And that's important, but the actual act of doing that freedom lands in the hands of of Black people.
1: In Wicked Flesh, you refer to Black women practicing freedom even when they could not call themselves free. And that that has really sort of struck me, this idea of like, yeah, okay, there are these really important acts of like, literally freeing yourself in a legal sense. And then there are, as you say, these practices of gathering, dancing, you know, these other things that fall outside of a simple binary of free versus enslaved um, and that complicate that binary as being, you know, like an off-on switch. Either you're enslaved or you're free and there's nothing in between.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that was always interesting to me in how we how academics in some ways have written about slavery is that there is the enslaved person, and then they get a document that says they're free, and now they're the free person and hooray. And, you know, yes. Absolutely. There is so much that leads up to um, securing that document, which most people, even in, you know, the, even after they've positioned, even after they've taken their owner to court or appeared in, you know, before whoever official or appeared in the will, there's still no guarantee and not always even documentation that they secure the document that says they're free. So there's also that aspect. But yes, like, you know, the things you have to go through in order to just get the kind of legal writ of emancipation and manumission, huge. Right. But also like you are still living in a world in which slavery exists, in which the structures of the law do not allow for black people to have any equal status with with white people in this world. Um, And that's that's no access to suffrage. That's no access. Like the citizenship laws, the suffrage laws, like the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, those exist because of the Civil War. Citizenship was not just granted period. Carte Blanche um, until then, until that moment. um, Suffrage was a thing that was propertied um, white and male um, and remained male until, you know, the 1920s, but like was still very much um, a particular elite status um, uh, available uh, option. It was available to those of elite status. And so, you know, like in living in this world in which the forces of institutions the law uh, uh elected institutions um economic institutions investors credit all of that is arrayed against you that world was created over this long time period and that world was not going to be dismantled by a single act of emancipation that said every single act of emancipation was one Brick out of that edifice, right? And that's really, really important to remember. And it has to be both, right? It can't be like, yes, I, you know, like, you know, the, you know, this group of folks, this family was able to secure freedom, and therefore, you know, like that is, you know, the success that we want to have. Well, what does that success mean when, um, you know, Phyllis Whitley is able to secure freedom, but then, you know, has to kind of, you know, is is forced to to be employed, um, essentially at, among other things as a domestic when she's this like amazingly lettered, literate um woman at this point and ends up, you know, dying in poverty ill, in part because of you know access to housing, access to medical care. Things that sound really familiar today.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> But are still mm-hmm. at, at play then, right? And so it's important to see like, okay, what kind of world that is slavery created? Um, and to see all of the different kinds of institutions that are created to buttress bondage. And then to remember that free people are entering into that world. They're not entering into the world and the freedoms of white citizenship. And that's part of the reason why, even if you ran away um, across Mason-Dixon line or ran away all the way up to Canada, you are still understanding your lot as the same lot as, um, as enslaved people, especially at least in the U.S. context. And that's, a, that's a, it's a kind of kinship and also a political understanding, political consciousness of here are the stakes, right? And the stakes don't change now that I've had access to manumission. Um, they may be ameliorated a little bit. Um, they may be ameliorated a lot, but I am still being seen in this kind of second class positioning, third, fourth class positioning. And that means there's more work to be done to truly have an abolitionist world, to truly abolish the institutions and the structures that were created out of slavery.
0: I feel like that is such a beautiful place to segue into our next segment. Let's
3: do it.
0: Well, the unwrapping is done, which means that we finally get to play with our presents. And guess what we've got? Owls. <laughs> I wondered why all of the boxes had those holes in, like carved into them. And feathers yes. coming and out. And hooting. And hooting.
1: Okay, so Jessica, my, my brain has been aflame the whole time you have been teaching us so many exciting things. And I wrote this note during our conversation. I wrote down, wait a minute, where do house elves come from? Like, is there a before, before their attachment to institutions? Like, Dobby is the only example we have of an after.
2: I'm realizing I actually never applied that logic to, um, <laughs> to <the Potter.
0: laughs> This is a hard-hitting, this is a hard-hitting podcast where we ask the tough questions.
1: I mean, welcome to Witch, Please. What we do is take a really serious theory and then we're like, but what if we apply it to Harry
2: Potter? No, but it's it is it's really interesting because it's one of the kind of, it's one of those sort of backstories that is kind of, whisk, not whispered about, but probably least hinted at i feel like (laughs) from the books because there's there's the house elves there's the goblins like goblins have this long history harry encounters
1: this idea that goblins like didn't make treasures for humans exactly made them for themselves and they've got their own culture and logics of ownership and all of this stuff that harry's like wait you don't exist just to run the
2: bank no, actually we have this whole, you know, grief with you guys because you guys took all of our things and, you know, have have sequestered them into the bank and we would like our sword back and <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. but yeah, how some sort of kind of drop out of the bottom of that. If I remember correctly that there's not really a clear origin story and that's always nothing. That kind of yeah, there's kind of weird things about them as a feature of the the world building, right? You know, like that they Sort of like Harriet Beecher Stowe, <laughs> and 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 Tom and Eliza, they have you know they they perform a function narratively, discursively, in the political consciousness even of the main characters, but they kind of like it's like three quarters full of humanity, and that like last piece ends up sort of missing, and then that last piece includes like what is the origin story, like how did you get here, how does this dynamic happen? So if we want to think about.
0: The Harry Potter novels as doing a similar kind of work to like to like a Harriet Beecher Stowe where it's like a, a quote-unquote sympathetic white author who wants to make these othered and enslaved and marginalized people sympathetic to the audience what are the things that we should be reading for that would that would signal to us like this is a limited and problematic approach to characterization. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this, I think.
2: <laughs> so for example, there's creature, right? And the scene where he where we finally actually hear this is what happened with Regulus. This is what happened with the Locket. And, you know, there's you know the subtext of Regulus, you know, like really having like sensitive feelings for um for Creature, like actually caring about. Uh, an elf which is like oh my gosh like how could that be and all of that is interesting but <laughs> there's just this like there's this moment where where Harry um uh, after he after they hear this story and they realize oh creature is devastated because he can't um he can't destroy the locket like that Harry I, I forget what he offers him but he he basically makes a gesture of um he gives him something from black he gives him the fake locket he gives him the fake locket and creature just has this like oh my gosh thank you so much like it's just like a whole kind of meltdown of gratitude, right? Every time I come encounter that that part of the of the narrative, I always go to in my head the stories from um, the antebellum period of, of white people traveling throughout the South and saying, "Oh my gosh!" And the enslaved people are so um, they're so effusive and they're so. Thankful, and they, you know, like they were so grateful that I gave them food or water, or that I, you know, was, you know, I gave them a compliment, and they just, you know, it, tears came to their eyes. It was so meaningful to them. And I'm like, you know, like what part of this is house elves like being hardwired as, you know, like they, I think the book tries to say, especially through Hermione, that they're hardwired for this kind of effusive gratitude and loyalty and all of that? And what part of that is them playing a game? You know, like what part of that is them, you know, masking? And some of this, you know, especially, you know, now knowing who Rowling is, like I'm probably, I, at the time I was probably giving her too much credit. But at the time I was also like thinking about, you know, there is... If we are informed by the practices of freedom, by praxis of resistance, by the ways that Black people throughout time and space have had to um, have one face in, in public and code switch to have another face in their communities. Like, how is that happening potentially among households and within um, the dynamics they're having with each other? Like, what does Creature go back and do once he's able to kind of like have some quiet time by himself? Is either talking shit about the blacks? I don't know. You know, but I like to imagine that, you know, like there might be something there that is, you know, beyond sort of that that one note.
1: Yeah, that sort of incredibly valuable question always of like these characters who we only ever see through Harry's perspective. What are they like off screen? What are they doing when Harry's not watching them? And also, how unreliably is Harry actually recounting to us the details of these interactions? Because we know he's an unreliable narrator. And we know that he's not a particularly thoughtful observer of the complex politics of the wizarding world. So generally, we only get attention to those politics via Harry reporting other characters talking to him about them. So, you know, most of our sense of like, there is something wrong with the way that house elves are treated comes through Hermione's voice, for example. But we've got this one example of an elf who desperately wants to be free, and that is Dobby and yet we get a very strong sense that nobody else is on board so this this is a big question for me is like why do we have and let me put a star beside the word why why do we have one elf who desperately loves freedom and who uses that language over and over again right he says dobby is a free elf it is on his his tombstone right he is a free elf that is the key thing about him dobby has
0: no master dobby is a free elf and dobby has come to save harry potter and his friends
1: and yet he is surrounded by other elves who seem to have no desire for it and, and the, the star beside why is sort of you know i'm interested and why within the, within the logic of the series, but I'm also interested in the sort of like narrative why, like what are the narrative implications of creating this one character who represents freedom and then
2: killing him. That is always so wild to me. That is always so wild to me. Like Dobby is a free elf, but he couldn't live as free. You know, Ron, Hermione, and Harry in particular, like they're sort of reactions to the house elves like th- throughout the series like hermione's whole campaign <laughs> to free the elves <laughs> it all gives in some ways and I, I don't know if this is intentional but it gives this kind of interesting window into some particularly like white liberal framings of you know what um right liberal imaginings of of Black freedom and the role white liberals might play in that in that imagining, right? Like you have, you know, like, oh, they don't want it. They don't deserve it. Like Ron is just kind of like over it, right? Completely. You have Harry who's like, I'm actually just confused and I'm new to this and I kind of want to help. But also like I have my own plans of what I want to do. This <laughs> is like the like, you know, the white Marxist version. It's like, oh, that that black freedom thing, that seems really, really important. But also like class. But late, like, but later
0: I've got this.
2: Later, I'm busy. Like, there's this whole other thing, you know, in your time.
0: The oh, but also class is
2: and then there's Hermione, who is, you know, like in a lot of ways is a bleeding heart, is like, I have just discovered that I am the malign of the wizarding world. And also. So are you, House Elves? Let us band together. And so, there's something really, you know, this. I think this meant to be very sympathetic about about that for sure. But also, like, she also is is very much. Oh no, they're hardwired to be faithful. They're hardwired to not be whole selves mm. at all points. She's she's very much like, no, you don't you don't understand. Or I don't think this is in the seventh book. I think this is this is earlier, like four or five, where she's leaving clothing. <laughs> Around, um, to free them, you know, like a very kind of passive (laughs) intervention in in a you know slavery regime, and also like you like you you could potentially get them in a lot of trouble by just you know by them encountering those things. Do you think they don't know that they could be (laughs) in trouble for that? That they could be punished for that? Um, all of this to say, like that Dobby could not exist as a free elf in the world that is after revolution or after the end of fascism or after, you know, like that moment, right? Of, of 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 escaping. Um I was
1: thinking about exactly that when you were talking about, you know, the sort of enslaved free binary and what it means to be sort of freed into a world in which the conditions of slavery continue to exist. And 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 that is the context in which Dobby is free. Like, Dobby is free in a world in which house elves are defined by their lack of desire, their desire for non-freedom. Like, not even a lack of desire for freedom, but a desire for indentured servitude. Um, And so in that context, like, how is he supposed to exist in that world?
0: Even if we think about, like, what Dobby does once he has been freed is he goes to work at Hogwarts. So he has a a kinder employer, but he's doing the same work. And when Hermione like talks to him about how much money he's making or how many days off he has, he's still like, whoa, 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 whoa. One day off a month is sufficient.
2: I still obviously love labor and labor here in particular, Mm. like for Mm -hmm. these, you know, like these wizards, like. These are my wizards, right? Like, and yeah, and, and this is a refrain you also see in, you know, white travelers' representations, or it's like, yeah, where they're talking to slave owners, plantation owners, and they're like, no, 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 my Negroes, no, no, they're okay. Like it's those over there that are the problem. Um, you see this written into law during the Haitian Revolution, where you have uh, officials in, you know, the British colonies um, in the U.S. Um, and officials in what is still Spanish, like Louisiana, Florida. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, we'll keep our Africans here, our enslaved people, but those French Negroes, they can't come over here, right? Like, so you also have those kinds of interesting um, distinctions. And and to read that through Dobby being like, no, 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 like, this, this is great. Like, I love this. I don't know. I also think about, like, the ways that, like, this is, you know, in some ways, you know, a very British world, um, a very British imperial world. Um, in the British Empire, you had the end of slavery, but you also had the long apprenticeship period. And so it wasn't, you know, even that freedom was not free. And to have, you know, like the free elf, you know, being, you know, so enthusiastic about essentially continued apprenticeship and continued second-class citizenship. Um, and then to not be able to exist as free, like had to be killed off because there's not a narrative arc of a free elf in the world beyond that. Those are, those are actually very aligned, right? Like, so the crisis of what to do with Black people after freedom was a thing that held up emancipation and then was resolved by saying, well, we'll just keep them in some kind of form of servitude until, you know, they seem to have proven themselves correct and um, proven themselves as adequate for equal citizenship. And that adequate for is a thing that just continues to be pushed further and further into the future um, in various kinds of ways. Um, so... There's some aspects there that feel very like, okay, this comes out of a particular context of understanding who is worthy of um, freedom and what that freedom is, is meant to entail.
0: While we're talking about these narratives and these ways of understanding the various representations of our house elves, what should we do... With Hermione, because canonically, she is white, but the the fandom has really identified with and claimed her as black. and And so how does how does reading her as white or black um shift the meaning of her activism in the series?
2: I don't know. I'm sort of uh, I get stuck because I, I also have so little faith that Rowling could do that justice. Hermione, to me, I I put her so much in the box of like the abolitionist track, right? Like the 19th century abolitionist track. Like, you know, oh my gosh, the poor Negroes and they need our help. Like, what will we white people do? Um, like the fervence. Of her activism, her faith in something else being possible is so total, and her infantilization of the house elves is also so immense that the two very much uh, go together in a kind of like nineteenth-century abolitionist schema. So her gender, actually, I think, is really important there, and her ability to embody that because of her her feminists, her femininity, I think, is really key. But I also think it's important that she is neutrally, in the sense, she's neutrally raced as white. I would love to see a Hermione that was like Black, caribbean african descent is also thinking about you know mud blood and the conversation also about race and phenotype and um and one drop rules that could bring that into the conversation whenever the mud blood conversation i know we're talking about house elves and, and so mud blood but that's the thing like so that's the thing that comes up right like it's um and we're talking about house elves but at the same time like a hermione who is who is of african descent can't then look at being a mudblood and the conversation about mudblood in the being a mudblood in, in the wizarding world in the same way. Like it's, for me, it's just impossible to disaggregate those. And I think that for a true, a character that's true to that story, true to that background, it would have to bring those together. And that then makes me imagine, well, then what are there other solidarities that could have been possible between a mudblood Hermione activist and um, house elves? Like, are you then looking at their actions differently? Are you seeing that kind of like effusive embodied gratitude with the same sort of skepticism that I am? Like, are you wondering where they go to hang out, you know, when they're not here serving and where the real action is? Like, those are the kinds of things that I think that Hermione gets smarter and not smarter, like book smarter, but like smarter about like where the secrets and the silences might be and you know, that may or may not change the fundamentally th- fundamental things that she does with Harry and Ron, but it adds a kind of interesting texture to where and how she understands social relations lie in this world. Um so I think it changes a lot, but I think it also means that we gotta that, that it's a rewriting of her that I think could be provocative and exciting.
1: I remember Kay Alex in our episode with her pointing out That Hermione doesn't refer to the house elves as enslaved until after she's had that very frightening confrontation at the Quidditch World Cup where she sees this violence being done to muggles and Draco basically threatens her. And says, like, you better watch out, Mudblood, like, we're coming for you. And she has this, this very frightening encounter with the kind of violence that she is going to be subject to as a, a muggle-born wizard. And it's after that that she starts using the language of enslavement for the house elves. I have no desire to attribute any intentionality to Rowling doing that. But it is an interesting moment that does sort of offer this, this potential reading of Hermione as somebody who is starting to make those links, who is making those latent links between the way in which she's being categorized within the wizarding world and the way that the house elves are being treated and what that means about the sort of larger structure of the wizarding world. And you know, she's 17 when the books end, so one can dream that maybe she goes to college. That she just returns to the the Muggle world to be like, it's actually wild that wizards don't have any post secondary education.
2: So I'm just gonna go and just learn more. Black wizard Hermione just going joining to like Howard University and just you know pledging. What would she pledge? Mm, I'll give her. mm, Is she a Delta? I mean, she does save the world, so. We could make her, I am also a Delta, so we can make her, you can make her my Soror. So Black Wizard Hermione, my future Soror, at Howard University. Yes, like absolutely, I can see the vision there. It also, you know, it, it, I was just sort of talking about the the class bros, the Marxist bros, but it also does bring in the concept of, of class in interesting ways. So there is a black, there is a, a world in which a black wizard Hermione, you know, does have to have that revelation and then is is effusive about like this activism with change things, but also doesn't get that like, there may also be intra-racial dynamics that might need to get worked out. So. Um, that kind of infantilization of the house elves, you know, if that, bec- you know, if that's transformed into a class analysis, is there a class difference there that needs to be interrogated, even as a kind of racialized similarity or history of bondage is a shared experience? There are other experiences under there that that offer deeper layers. Um, so there is a way that, that, you know, everything could stay the same and that would illuminate some of the, you know, even tensions and and layers within Black organizing, Black communities, Black diasporic communities, and how all that operates.
1: Hermione also offers us one of the few textual examples, because I've been going back through my head to look for, like, where do we get glimpses of house elves' practices of freedom? What are the moments? And I think, you know, that there's something in creatures Profound belligerence towards our heroes. That is that is intriguing in that sense, but I also, in light of this idea, was thinking back to the way the house elves are straight up all totally aware of what Hermione is doing with like leave trying to leave clothes around for them, and are like a little embarrassed for her, and are like, oh, honey, no, we'll remove those. We won't mention it to you because you are making yourself look very silly right now. And that that is interesting, isn't it? That, yeah, in one version of that, it's just a reinforcement of how selves hate freedom. But another version of it is like, they've kind of got their own thing going on here and they don't need you to come along and infantilize them
0: like this. Introduce them to freedom as though it's something they've never heard of before. Yeah. So we're coming to a close, but... What I'm wondering is, can we get a sense, based on the way that these relationships are playing out in the books, can we get a sense of where Rowling is getting her material? Where is she getting her information about the appreciativeness of of creature on receiving the fake locket or where is she getting her information about the 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 reluctance of the hogwarts house elves to to be to be freed like yeah, it, like
1: what are the what are the the, the intertexts there what mm-hmm. is she drawing on
0: Yeah cuz it doesn't sound like she's drawing on like revolutionary black literature Can you imagine It doesn't seem like that's the archive she visited to build this world i actually just
1: a few minutes ago when we were talking about where the house elves come from i was like oh shit is this going to be one of those things that like Rowling wrote a whole silly Pottermore article that was like naturally here's the history of the house elves wizards used to just poop on the floor and then disapparate it like is this going to be another one of those and i looked and it does not appear that she has attempted to give them any history but the like harry potter fan wiki talks about like the possible inspirations for them and roots them in relation to like the history of of brownies and like the particularly irish english scottish history of, of fairy stories so like these fairies that like you know, we'll come to your home and do things for you if you leave gifts out for them or like that there's a fair like so there is this this history of sort of stories of, of the fairies and, and how you, you leave stuff out for them so that they'll they'll do you favors and stuff. So So that's the link that they're making is like maybe you leave them a baby. But usually oh, yeah, like a
2: thing. Yeah.
1: Usually like a like a bowl of milk. Yeah. So if you're mean to them, they'll take your baby away and replace it with a changeling. But if you're nice to them, they might like make your shoes for you, like the shoemakers elves. So there is kind of this like this British fairy tale history, which is definitely an intertext for sure, but absolutely does not explain the abolitionist ferocity of dobby or the emphasis on freedom which is not i guess maybe is there kind of a little bit in stories of leprechauns like if you catch them they have to give you stuff but like that's not the house elves are like they're not random feral elves that have been caught and so have to grant
2: a wish yeah i would not have taken it there (laughs) brownies and fairies was not where I would have imagined that would go. Although I can see that. I, but to me, that also is like, like slavery's right there though. Yeah. You know, like, so that's <laughs> like, and I get yeah. that and I think that's the thing that fandoms do and genre genre fandoms in particular, of white genre fandoms in particular are like, no, 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 it's not that. It's obviously this other thing. It's like the dragons, not, you know, the concentration camps. And it's like, well, actually- The goblins aren't Jews. Don't be silly. The goblins are just goblins. Yeah. Or we could talk about British Empire and its history of, you know, the sun never sets on the the British Empire. We don't even have to go to the Caribbean or, you know, the Americas. Like the continent is right there as far as thinking about subjugation and servitude and forced labor in homes and forced labor, period. Like, because that's the theme. It's not just domestics. They're not just like, hey, it's not an exchange. You know, they are very much like they're bound to families. They're bound into bondage, they are bound. And that is a particular genre of like the spell that keeps you in a certain position or a certain place. But it's also, you know, the history is right there. And so what is interesting about about thinking about it as a British text is that you have this really, really deep and proud and loud history of what we freed the slaves, like guys, we freed them. We are the reason why you have the, you know, um, you know, the Somerset case that was, you know, that was you know, that, you know, stopped slavery from being in uh, Great Britain in the in in the European soil context. It's why you have, you know, like um, abolition act, like it's why like we ended the slave trade, then we policed the waters so that the slave ships could not come across, which only worked mostly for the North Atlantic and not for Brazil and Spanish-speaking places. But you know, it's why you have that, there's, that narrative is very, very, very dense. And so I think that is one, of, like the inner text that is, um, that is happening here, um, which is to say Hermione embodies, like in her activism, sort of embodies that narrative of like, no, 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 like, We must do this for the colonized peoples of the world that we have colonized and will continue to keep in some subjugated status for our own financial and economic benefit, um, financial and political benefit. Like Hermione kind of embodies that and um, house elves themselves. I think the structure of their lives embodies the other side of that, which is that, yes, we have freed you. What do we do with you? (laughs) We can't make you equal. Like that's the impossibility of equality or imagining full humanity. I think is the piece that is is also some of that that intertext. Like that. Well, yes, you're freed, but like you know, like these here is all the criteria for citizenship, and oh, funny, you don't meet it. And funny, you probably never will. And funny, like, oh, you want your nation to be, you know, freed of British Empire? Well,, eh, I don't know, maybe in another fifty years, right? You know, so I think that they' I think those are like your economy has for some reason been devastated. So we yeah, don't, don't think that why. you're ready it's for so independence. Weird.
1: Yeah, yeah, we don't know what strange. happened
2: there, but it's really it's no good. So I think that that's um, I think that that's actually the intertext um, one of them that Rowling is reaching for. And while I, you know, like most of the kind of interventions I've made have been a kind of a U.S. context, the British Empire is right there. We don't really have to reach to Brownies, although I thought you were going to go somewhere really interesting with like Ireland and the UK and um, and, uh, and British relationship <laughs> between. Northern Ireland I was like oh this is going to get spicy but
1: <laughs> there is within the UK a history of violent colonization and I think there's there's some implication that the house elves are like indigenous to the UK but that doesn't mean that they weren't like violently taken over I mean they're they're attached to old wizarding families and old wizarding institutions so it there was even. a point estates. You're right. There's plenty of history right there in the UK. It's very close to turn to.
2: Yeah, it is very close. When you see, when you hear, you know, galloping, you just think horses instead of zebra. Like the horses are right there.
1: Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. If you want more of us, which you obviously do, we're on Twitter and Instagram at please And, of course, on Patreon at patreon.com slash please where you can get all kinds of sweet perks like movie watch-alongs and bloopers and comics made from those bloopers and an absolutely unhinged Q&A series that Marcel and I make. There's just so much bonus content and also importantly that money goes to making the podcast and being a producer so join the, join the patreon join the join the patreon also i would like you to read my book it's called a sentimental education i produced an audiobook for it which will provide you with multiple hours of my mellifluous voice so find that wherever fine books are sold jessica if people want more of you where can they go
2: Mm, well, you can purchase Wicked Flush or wherever books are sold. I'm also on the socials. I am still on Elon Musk's Twitter, unfortunately, at JMJAFRX, JMJ Um, But I'm also on IG, same name. And also check out the different uh, labs we run. I didn't talk a lot about digital things, but I do, in another world, do DH, Digital Humanities. And that's at lifexcode.org. And you can get clued into all the kinds of things there.
0: You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca, along with transcripts. Yay! Plus, our incredible new team member, Gabby, has been creating exciting new website content for us. So if you haven't visited the site in a while, you should go check it out. We have merch! (laughs) Can you believe? Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. To our Witch Please Apprentice, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. Thank you. At the end of every
1: episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, so you've gotta review us if you want to hear Marcel taking a look at the 5 and 10 glistening once again with candy canes and silver lanes of glow take a look at the 5 and 10
0: glistening once again thanks this week to Downton Jimmy Every Name Was Taken So This Is It Lau Liu Yu, Samuela Zoa Nick MJ and Lolly Loves His Laudcasts Thank you all for your reviews. Oh, and in response to your request, we are in fact working on a Witch Please Work Cited page coming in 2023. You can consider it our New Year's resolution.
1: We'll be back next episode to conclude our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then, later witches.